On JPAM's Closer Look, we will be talking to leading authors published in the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management on timely topics such as healthcare, education, immigration reform, and economics. Hi, everybody. Our guests today are Dr. Shushan Danagulian, an associate professor of economics at Wayne State University in Detroit, and Dr. Daniel Grossman, associate professor of economics at West Virginia University. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. We're glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really glad you could make it, and, and thanks for making the time to talk to us today. We're going to talk about your forthcoming publication in JPAM entitled Healthcare Following Environmental Disasters, Evidence from Flint. This important work is co-authored with David Slusky, the Demon and Chin Sha Wu Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Kansas. And as the title suggests, in a very literal sense, the, the three of you are studying the impact of the Flint water crisis on children's utilization of different types of healthcare services. Though I have a slightly different interpretation of, of what the study's really about, and I'm curious what you think of that. But before we get into the specifics of what you're doing, because the context of the study is the disaster in Flint, could you give us a little bit of a timeline of, of an overview of what's been happening in Flint with regards to water, and specifically what happened in the fall of 2015 that is so critical to your study? Sure. Thank you very much, Seth. So the event that we're studying started in April 2014 when the municipality of Flint, the city of Flint, switched its water supply from the Huron Lake to the Flint River. The water in the river was not sufficiently treated. And so over the summer of 2014, bacteria were discovered in the water and the chlorine levels were increased to treat the bacteria. As the chlorine level was increased, there started emerging evidence of corrosiveness in the water, in both in terms of pipe corrosiveness as well as bacteria, which were uh, toxins which were discovered in the water as a result of the overchlorination of the water. In January 2015, the first measurements of excessive lead in water were discovered, and the, the city of Flint judged these to be within norm. At the same time, Mark Edwards of the Virginia Polytechnic Institute started a water evaluation of the lead levels in the Flint water supply and sampled residential water across the city throughout the beginning of 2015. By August 2015, he released the results of his study and coupled that with a press conference that Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha of University of Michigan Flint released at the same time of, of elevated blood lead levels among children in Flint. In September 2015, this is approaching the period that we're, we're really focusing on, the city of Flint acknowledged that there was an overall increase in lead measurements in the city of Flint that were not outliers or flukes or within norm, and switched the water supply back from Flint River to the Huron Lake supply, and at the same time issued a lead advisory for the city. 
At that point, it was believed that potentially the contamination was was over, but lead measurements continued being elevated so that by January 2016, the governor of the state, Governor Snyder, declared a state of emergency and acknowledged the mismanagement of the water supply and acknowledged the fact that the lead pipes in the city were now completely stripped and leaking into the water supply continuously. Okay. So why did they switch the water source in the first place? They switched the water source as a a measure of cost savings. In 2012, the city of Flint was put into emergency management, and the emergency manager in 2013 determined that the city would save money by switching away from the water that was at that point supplied by Detroit sewage and water supply. Okay. And so the... So it was, it was just a, a money issue. The water from Detroit was presumably safe to use, but it was they had the opportunity to save money by switching to the lake. The other thing I was wondering is, like, why did these scientists come to study the water? Like this guy from Virginia Tech, what prompted that analysis? Just the fact that it was a new water source? So immediately after the switch, there were a number of residential reports of the water looking odd color and smelling differently. Okay. So the uh, and and these were and that prompted likely, them to do some more analysis. exactly. So these were pro- were it. probably prompted by the bacteria in the water that was being under under chlorinated. In turn, once they started chlorinating the water, it led to a lead contamination. But I believe Mark Edwards was just simply addressing the change in the water quality overall, not initially lead specifically. Right. But it was the the discoloration that residents noticed, and that's what prompted concerns that there was a problem with the water. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So that's the background, and I'm sure many of our listeners have heard various pieces of that. And we'll talk more about the, the state takeover and the response and so on as we talk through your paper. But I, I want to come back to the the bigger idea about like, is this paper about Flint or is it about something else? And I found your paper really fascinating, but as I read it and, and thought about it, my main takeaway, and I'm curious if, if you agree, was that in September 2015, when the announcement was was made that there's high levels of lead in the water and and this is a problem. That was a big information shock to people. That was important information about people's health and their children's health. And I view your papers really studying the effect of that information on citizens' use of healthcare and approach to healthcare, as opposed to the effect of the environmental disaster per se. Is that an okay way to think about it, a useful way to think about it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. I think we we are thinking about this as an information shock. And it's in our research, we we generally try to find, we look for variation or what we call quasi-experimental variation, these sort of natural experiments where we can look at what would have, try to figure out what would have happened had an event not occurred. And this is certainly an information shock in which we can look at, you know, the effect of this new information on people. And, you know, it's obviously a bad situation in, in which we certainly prefer that this information does not come through a, you know, a sort of an environmental disaster. But we are, in, in, in the end, we are looking at what the effect of this information shock is on healthcare utilization and, and sort of, you know, parental and child behaviors uh, in terms of, you know, healthcare utilization. And so what do you find? How did that information shock affect behavior, the 
demand for primary care visits, lead tests, and so on? What do you find? And so what we end up finding is that, you know, this healthcare information, this information shock leads to a large increase in lead tests among young children. And that increase in lead tests generally take place in an office setting, which means that there's also an increase in primary care visits. And it does seem to create this tie-in to the healthcare system. And what we end up seeing is that children also, we also see a decrease in what we call avoidable hospitalizations after the information shock. And is that the same as a reduction in emergency room visits? Or is that another thing that happened? We're able to separate emergency visits into two different measures, one which we call sort of non-avoidable. These would be things that no matter what, you know, think about like an appendix bursting or something like that, you would need to go to see the, to the emergency room no matter what. And there are also other things that are sort of avoidable emergency department visits. These are things that given proper primary care utilization or even, you know, just visits that could have been handled in another setting, in an office setting. And so we're seeing a decrease in those types of visits. We see no change overall in the non-avoidable visits, but we are seeing a decrease in visits that are associated with, you know, that could have been treated elsewhere in a primary care setting. Okay. And that's a good thing, right? Because emergency room visits are costly? Yeah. And so, you know, you could think about emergency room visits being particularly expensive. The more people that are showing up in the emergency room, it requires additional resources going into that emergency room. And you could think about, you know, in, in a private insurance setting, that would be potentially lead to higher premiums. In our setting, we have mostly we're using Medicaid data where there's lower, you know, there's probably little to no out of cost, out of pocket spending for people, but that is still, you know, that is potentially crowding out additional state and federal funds that could be used for additional healthcare services. I'd imagine that you're also just crowding out people that really have an emergency that really need to go to the emergency room. Yeah, and there there is that as well. And so I guess what I would say here is that while even though there's that would be crowding out emergency department services in general, but also, you know, we have triage services. So if you do go to the emergency room with, you know, a less serious condition, it's still going to have a pretty large non-monetary cost for parents and and children who are going to end up waiting longer periods of time at the emergency room as well. Sure. And you're also not seeing your regular physician probably in the ER. And so they might Because I feel like part of the story here is that when kids went in for these lead tests, they developed relationships and trust with their primary care providers that might not be there with a a random ER doctor. So part of your study then is that this is the effect of information, but it's also like we were just talking about, it's the effect of primary care usage on ER visits. Prior to your study, what did we know about this? It, It seems like a hard question to study how does primary care usage crowd out or complement or replace ER visits? Do we know much about that prior to your study? So we do know a little bit about this. It, it is definitely a hard question to study just because it's tough to try to think about how to induce people to get more primary care use. There have been a couple of studies from Bradley and Newmark that have tried to basically provide financial incentives to uh, have people go to the doctor more often. And these are relatively modest some say they, they basically randomize people to either receive, you know, either $25 or $50 to go to see their primary care physician. But they do find some, you know, some pretty interesting patterns in terms of decreases in emergency department usage following these uh, inducements. 
And so there is some evidence that getting people to use primary care services more often does decrease emergency department visits. And, you know, one of the things that we kind of postulate in our paper is that, as you mentioned before, one of the things that this could do is basically create a tie-in for parents to basically provide a, a source of usual care. And so if a child does get sick, if you know you've already been to a specific physician, then it's much easier to then say, okay, well, that's the that's our physician. That's the person we're going to go see when our child is sick. And we don't need to go, we don't actually have to go to the emergency department. We can just go uh, call our primary care doctor. And we'll dive into more of the details in a minute. But at, at, a, at a broad level, I, I was also curious about what motivated the research. And were you surprised at all by by your your main findings? I would say that, you know, Shushan and I and David as well, you know, David and I had had a previous study that we looked at some of the effects of the Flint water crisis on fertility outcomes. And Shushan has also has a paper that had previously looked at the effects of the Flint water crisis. We had been kind of, you know, working in this field before separately. And we had, we decided to, we, uh, Shushan had this great, had spoken with the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services about getting Medicaid data. And we were very interested about how this could potentially affect healthcare utilization and potentially health overall. And so, you know, we had an interesting uh, data source to kind of take our research question to. So very briefly, what you mentioned that you've done some other work studying the impacts of the Flint water crisis. Could you real quickly give us an idea of what other types of questions did you study here? Yeah. So the question that David and I had previously looked at was the effect of the Flint water crisis on fertility effects. And basically what we find in that paper is that following the water switch in Flint, we see fertility rates among citizens within the city limits decreased substantially compared to other areas in Michigan. And so we're able to sort of look at what the, whether that is more of a behavioral change, you know, sort of an effect of living under the experience, this new water system. And what we generally find is that it is the effect of the new water system rather than sort of a behavioral change. And I'll let Shushan talk about uh, her previous research. Thank you, Dan. So my previous research looks at, in a similar vein, at maternal outcomes during pregnancy. And specifically, we looked at whether moms who were pregnant after the water switch changed any of their behaviors, like, for example, breastfeeding or smoking. And what we found is that there was a, an increase in smoking rates among mothers or quitting or decrease in quitting smoking rates and a net decrease in breastfeeding during the contamination. And what we attribute that to is an increased stress level about the quality of water. We were thinking about the fact that potentially if the water the color is off and the smell is off, your overall stress level is elevated. And therefore, any kind of healthy living or lifestyle changes that would be advocated during pregnancy would become of a lesser concern or a lesser priority after the water switch than prior. Right. Yeah. And we know that stress during pregnancy is a huge risk factor. And for sure, the seeing the brown water come out of the tap and also all the media coverage of the water crisis, I'm sure, was... Yes, it was not just the quality of the water, but also... People knew something bad was happening. Something bad was happening, exactly. And they also felt, felt to some extent neglected by the municipality who was kept reassuring them that even though their water did not look drinkable, it was actually drinkable. Right. And so on that note, then, I, I think it's important at the outset to be, to be very clear. The crisis itself in Flint and the slow response has been reprehensible. And it's a real 
it's a real sort of systematic failure from what I can see and, and have heard about it. So you talked about the, the water switch itself, but I mean, even that, you know, happened due to the state takeover that you mentioned. What was going on with the state takeover and, and how far back does this whole story go? So it's really, it's one of those things that, you know, it goes back sort of as far back as you want to start. You know, in some ways, this goes back to basically the 1890s when there's city ordinances that basically, at the time, lead was considered a a sort of a really nice substance to work with in terms of lead pipes. It's malleable. It doesn't rupture as much. And so, you know, basically the city ordinance said that all water mains would be made with lead pipes. You know, that's going back way too far. But if kind of go back into the early 2000s, City population was decreasing in Flint. Flint's general economy has been tied to the audio, auto industry for a long time. And in the sort of late 2000s, you had uh, decreases in population and you had a city that um, was basically facing a choice provided by the state of either declaring bankruptcy or going under emergency management. And at the time, the state also had made you know emergency managers basically put in charge of all financial or fiscal decision making, which means that when the emergency manager decided to switch water sources, there was little that citizens could do. You know, they had elected officials, but those elected officials didn't have particularly, didn't have much that they could do to change that decision. Did they push back against the decision at the time? Like, did they have a feeling that this was not a great idea? Well, so there's a couple of things. At the actual time of the decision, the decision was made to switch, was not made to switch off of Lake Huron water specifically. It was made to switch the source of the Lake Huron water. They decided to build a pipeline basically to cut out the middleman. They were going to build a pipeline directly to Lake Huron that did not go through the Detroit Water and Sewerage Department. But the problem was that that also takes time. And so it was going to take about two years to, you know, to dig that pipeline. And in the meantime, the other municipalities that were part of this decision decided to stay on Detroit water while they were waiting for the pipeline to be built, while Flint ended up switching off and using the Flint River water. And so that decision itself is much more consequential. But then once there were concerns about the water, there was very little um, that they could do to switch back from that water without the emergency manager sort of, you know, agreeing to that change. Yeah. So I guess there's so many decisions that were made and not made sort of across this um, decades uh, almost, I guess. So we can second guess and and think about those different decisions. But the end result is that what happened happened. And we already mentioned your research about the effects on maternal stress that all of this had. And then there's also sort of direct and and maybe indirect effects of the water quality itself on physical and mental health. Do we know much about that? Like in terms of like, what's the direct effect of of drinking this contaminated water or, or anything like that? Yeah. So, you know, the direct effects in general of drinking water with higher levels of lead in it, there's correlation, there's sort of a direct correlation between, you know, drinking water with uh, higher lead levels and increased blood lead levels, um, which suggests that, you know, that, that, you know, basically lead is potentially um, getting into your blood. And this, you know, has a lot of potentially direct effects on behavioral changes. It can affect uh, educational outcomes. It's been associated with higher rates of crime. So there's a lot of potential direct effects of drinking this water or, you know, being exposed to the water and also in terms of, you know, possible rashes and other negative health outcomes. Is the effect on crime and, and educational outcomes, is that like it affects brain functioning or brain development? Yeah. And lead actually affects, you know, basically most major, you know, sort of developmental 
parts of the you know, of the body, and it can it can actually you know limit development of the brain. It's been associated with um, sort of you know rash decision making. So this is like serious, and even more serious for for children who are whose brain are developing rapidly at young ages. And so the water change in 2014, the scientists detected lead in, in early 2015. But then the real change for people, the real treatment didn't happen until September 2015 when the announcement was made. And you're studying the effect of that 2015 announcement. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so this was really like, this is the first time that the city and the state and basically, you know, also some, you know, national, basically uh, a lot of national coverage occurred, but that this is when they first announced that there was officially announced that there was a problem with the water. And it really marked a, a big change in the way that they were dealing with these, uh, with this issue uh, with the public as well. And so we take that as, you know, as the term used earlier in terms of an information shock to, to parents and to, um, to the citizens of, of the city. Right. And then, so to study the effect of this information shock, you're going to need pretty rich data. And I think you already mentioned Shushan was able to sort of develop this relationship with the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. And that's your main source of the data. And then later on, that let you link vital statistic records to the Medicaid claim files. Can you talk a little bit about how that process worked, how working with HHS as a partner was? I assume a lot of this data is very confidential and, and hard to access, right? Right. This was a really great collaboration with the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. I approached them first from the point of view of the vital statistics data, the birth records, and I worked with Glenn Copeland, who headed that office at the time. And then I approached separately the Medicaid office, which is headed by Matthew Schneider. And the challenge there was to request both sets of data sets as well as linking them together. And so uh, working with these two offices in the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services, I was able to work with them to connect the two data sets internally, de-identify them, give me all the data elements that would be useful in conducting any of these studies, and then work with them on a continuing basis to receive updated years of data as data became available as well as to work with them to ensure that they check to make sure that I was remaining within the data use agreement, that no personal information was ever released at any point during the studies. And so that's great that, that you were able to develop that relationship. And hopefully it seems like it was a mutually beneficial relationship in that you were able to help the Department of HHS analyze some data and get a sense of what was happening. I want to add that at that point, they hadn't really worked out a good kind of a method of, of collaborating with academics with data requests. And over the past five years, as I have continued working with them, they have developed a much better track for accessing these data. So these data are now much more readily available to researchers, and they have a, a process through which a researcher can request these data and work with MDHHS on this. Oh, that's fantastic. That's what we like to hear for facilitating evidence-based policy and, and making evidence-based policy. So we mentioned the Medicaid claim files. Real quickly, could you just give us an overview of, of what exactly is Medicaid, right? It's a federal health insurance program. Who's eligible for Medicaid? The sample that we're using for this are, are basically children who are aged zero to three. And in general, you know, Medicaid is generally available for low-income women pregnant women and children. And so for our purposes, we are focusing on 
on a Medicaid a sample of children. And essentially, there are eligibility rules in place that your parents um, have to earn below a certain income threshold. And I do not have that number exactly right in front of me right here. But essentially, you know, to be eligible, your parents would have to have an income below a... It's an income-based mm-hmm. eligibility. Exactly. In fact, I think for children, the eligibility is about 200% of the federal poverty level, but that differs by state. And I also wanted to highlight that in 2014, the Affordable Care Act expanded eligibility for Medicaid to parents as well as adults who do not have children to 138% of the federal poverty level. So now Medicaid is a much wider program that covers children, pregnant women, elderly, as well as adults who need insurance coverage. Right. And in Flint, a good majority of children were eligible then uh, under those expanded rules. Correct. In fact, in Flint, I think close to 82% of children in our sample were born to Medicaid insurance coverage. And then the other key piece of data that you need or information is the geography, the, the address of mothers at the time of birth. And so you you do have, I think, geocoded addresses for the mothers at the time of birth. And I'm stressing at the time of birth as opposed to like where you lived in 2015. Why is that distinction important? Well, we needed to know uh, whether the child was was ever exposed to the Flint water contamination or the parents believed that they were exposed. So to begin with, we needed to identify whether a child was born in Flint or not. But second, we wanted to also allow for the possibility that a mother may have given birth to a child in Flint and moved out, but the mother believed that their child was exposed to lead in utero or immediately after birth while they were still in Flint. So what was important for us was, was this child ever in Flint around their birth time and afterwards? Got it. And then you use this data to create what researchers would call a panel data set or longitudinal data. And that's basically just a series of repeated observations for each child. Is that right? Correct. We observe each child in each month. So we're able to track a child across time with observations in each month. Each month. Okay. And then, you know, obviously the focus here is on Flint, but you have data for the whole state of Michigan and so you're going to look at children born in other cities as well, and that's going to that's going to help serve as a comparison group. Correct. We're using um, 15 cities around Michigan as our comparison against uh, children who were born in Flint. Got it. And then I guess the the one last question I was wondering is, and this came up earlier on in our discussion about one of the interesting results is that you see a decrease in certain types of emergency room visits, specifically those visits for what you consider to be non-emergencies. How do you decide or how do you look at the data and let the data determine whether a visit was you know, a true emergency or something that could have waited uh, or been handled in a, in a regular physician's office visit? We used a uh, an algorithm that was developed at New York University, which is called the New York University Emergency Department Algorithm. This was developed by emergency physicians who reviewed records uh, from emergency department uh, visits in the 1990s, and a number of physicians categorized each diagnostic code for a visit according 
to whether it was preventable, non-preventable, emergent, or non-emergent, whether it could have been prevented with primary care visits, you know, all these categorizations. Because there were a number of physicians involved, a consensus among physicians was required in order to deem a particular diagnosis in a given category. Moreover, however, these categories were not exclusive. So, for example, we know that uh, croup, right, the respiratory disease croup, can sometimes be an emergency. Sometimes it can be treated in the primary care settings, and sometimes it can be completely non-emergency that can wait more than 24 hours. And so what these physicians would do is that they would say 57% of the time, croup is emergent and non-preventable, 19% of the time, it is primary care treatable, and 24% of the time, it does not warrant any emergency treatment. So that all these percentages eventually add up to 100%. So it, it, they were able to go through diagnostic categories or diagnostic codes that are seen in the emergency department and categorize them according to these percentages. So that's how, in our data, we have diagnostic codes, and so we use these, this algorithm in order to assign these percentages to each one of these diagnostic codes. Got it. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I'd never thought about how you would identify what's an emergency and what's not before, but it's a clever and intuitive solution to that problem. So we have this rich data. You did a lot of work to obtain the data and create these sort of monthly data sets for each individual child. And then you're going to compare the Flint children to the non-Flint children in other cities in Michigan and basically kind of like a difference in difference or event study type of design that we've seen on this podcast before. You're going to compare the trends in the Flint children to the trends in the other children elsewhere in the state. What's the main threat or concern that you're going to be worried about as you do your analysis here? So again, you're right that we are using difference in differences, and, and difference in differences is essentially trying to simulate an experimental setting using observational real-world data, which means that we're essentially making the assumption that the children in Flint before and after the announcement are very similar to the children outside of Flint before and after the announcement. That is, these are the population in Flint, the children in Flint have not changed in substance before and after. And so the biggest challenge would be if, for example, we detected that prior to the announcement, somehow there was some kind of a trend where the children's utilization of medical services was changing already, and the announcement was just along for the ride. It was a coincidence rather than a triggering event. And so that would be the biggest challenge to our method. Yeah. And so do you have any evidence that there was something else happening that was causing different uh, medical behaviors in Flint? We did consider this at length, in part because this period coincides also with expansion of Medicaid by the Affordable Care Act. As I mentioned, the Affordable Care Act expanded Medicaid eligibility in 2014. But that expansion in eligibility affected only adults. So children supposedly should not be affected. Nonetheless, in order to test the possibility that there was a pre-existing trend or pre-existing change that was occurring in Flint, we compare differences between Flint and the control group month by month in the months leading up to the announcement, and we find no significant trend or prevalent direction in any of the outcomes that we study. Got it. Well, that's reassuring and pretty convincing then that the Flint and non-Flint children looked like they were 
sort of similar in this pre-period prior to the announcement. So that sounds good. Let's dig into the results then. So first and foremost, I think just from a, a validity standpoint, you find that the announcement caused an immediate jump in lead tests. Uh, is that right? And how big was that effect? Yeah, so that that's right. We, we do see an immediate jump in lead tests in the September, October period. And the initial jump in lead tests was not enormous. It was, you know, sort of a slight increase, but it was it was sizable. Um, I would say it's statistically significant, but not. But we really see this very, very large increase was in the January, uh, February period of 2016, which is coincides with more national attention. This is when the governor apologized on in a televised way for, you know, sort of um, for failing the city to provide basic services. And that's when we really do see, you know, sort of a large jump in uh, lead tests. And overall, we tend to see about a 50% increase in lead tests among Flint children compared to other children. Oh, wow. And do you know anything about the results of the tests, or you just know that, that more tests are being taken? So we only know the fact that there are more tests taken, because again, we're dealing with claims data. So if there's a claim filed for a lead test, we see that, but we don't see the results. Presumably, there was also a jump in positive tests, I would imagine. So blood lead testing does not result in a positive or negative. I bet if any of our bloods were tested now, we would have some level measurement in all of our blood. The threshold for when there should be considered treatment is substantially higher. And if, for example, a child had a sufficiently high lead level, they would be subject to what's called chelation therapy, which essentially is a process by which their blood lead is removed from their blood. But in our data, we do not see a single claim for chelation therapy. And this is an expensive treatment. It would be done in the hospital in inpatient settings. So if we don't see a claim, there was no treatment conducted for this population. Instead, what we're happening is that a lot of these children have elevated blood levels. They're referred to what would be called primary prevention, which is simply an environmental inspection of their home, determining whether the elevated level Lead is the result of the water, whether there is paint chips that are lead in them, whether there's dust with lead in it, whether there's soil on the property that has lead in it. So an inspection is the more likely outcome of an elevated lead level in the Flint community. But again, in order to be able to get to that inspection, in order to be able to know whether your child has been exposed or not, the parents have to actually make an uh, appointment with a primary care physician in order to have the test done in a primary care setting because emergency departments would not conduct such a test. Or even if they conducted the test, they would not. The results would have to be obtained from your primary care physician. I see. So the test is going to tell you whether you're at a dangerous level. And it sounds like nobody was at such a dangerous level that they had to do this most invasive type of follow-up or procedure. But even at lower elevated levels, there would be these house visits and so on. Okay. So I guess that makes sense. I'm, I'm a little surprised that there wasn't more of a direct response to the elevated blood tests. Although maybe like you said, it just takes a, a, a longer time for, for that to show up. Well, I mean, to be honest, with elevated lead levels, there isn't a whole lot, there aren't a lot of treatments that physicians can undertake. Again, as I said, chelation therapy is the extreme, but anything that is elevated but not life-threatening is essentially behavioral changes, environmental inspection, and such. There is no, to the best of my knowledge, no medical treatment for it. So the response is really just 
trying to get the levels lower by changing behavioral practices, maybe changing home environment stuff. Exactly. Well, that makes sense. So that's the blood test result. And it's one of the important findings because it sort of uh, helps us understand your subsequent findings. And, and I thought your main subsequent finding was that not only was there an increase in lead tests, but there was also an increase in follow-up visits to the primary care physician. And my reading of that was that you suddenly had this trust and, and relationship, this exposure with the physician for the lead tests, and then that leads to a follow-up visit. Is that the right way of thinking about it? And, and what exactly do you see there? How big are the effects of these return office visits? Yeah, so I, I think that is the right way to, to think about it. Part of the way that we've thought about it in the past is that if you're a parent and your child gets sick and you don't have any tie-in to the healthcare system, it's very hard to think about where you can take your child to, you know, to have them seen by a physician. And so that might lead to going to the emergency department um, regardless of the level of, of sickness. Whereas if you, you've been to the doctor, you had a lead test, they helped you interpret the results. And the next time your child gets sick, it's a lot easier to think, oh, okay, we know that this doctor is good. They helped us in the past. So you know, we should try to make an appointment there. And so what we actually can see with that is that following a lead test, we see an increase in vaccination rates. We see an increase in wellness visits. And we also see that there is sort of adherence to going to the same physician or potentially going to the same clinic. And those effects are rather large. We see something like a, a 15 percentage point increase in going to the same clinic, which is it's something like a 25% increase in going to the, sort of the same clinic, which you know suggests that there is this usual source of care and that there is this sort of continuity of care uh, that is potentially there you know, in the short term. That makes a lot of sense. And then, of course, the final result, which we've already talked about a couple of times now, is that ultimately that increased use of these uh, regular office visits crowded out a little bit of emergency visits, which we generally think is a good thing in terms of cost savings and, and, and keeping ER resources available for true emergencies. And then this is where you use the NYU algorithm to distinguish between true emergency visits and non-emergency visits. And do you want to just remind us again, what are the effect sizes that you find there? So we find that this kind of you know, behavioral changes resulted in about 4.9 fewer visits per thousand visits, avoidable emergency department visits. It might seem like a really small effect, but it's about a 10% effect on the number of visits that were occurring. An important kind of a motivation for why these avoidable visits should not be occurring in the emergency department aside from cost and resource utilization is the fact that oftentimes these avoidable visits include things like, for example, asthma care or diabetes care, or they include things which benefit from consistent care over time rather than a single event of seeing a, a physician in the emergency department who cannot follow up on chronic conditions or on nutrition the child receives or any of this ongoing care that's necessary. So moving that child outside of the emergency department towards primary care for these avoidable visits actually also improves the quality of care that the child receives. Right. Oh, absolutely. And I think it all comes back to that, that relationship building again. So to recap, then, if we think of this like a, a public information shock, this information absolutely really mattered. And it seems like it really changed important health behaviors for uh, vulnerable children. This public announcement in September 2015 about lead likely being in the water sort of caused this chain reaction. It, it initially created demand for lead tests. The lead tests 
turned into follow-up visits. The follow-up visits crowded out some non-emergency emergency room visits. And so there's just somewhat persistent change in healthcare utilization. Is that right? And I guess something we didn't talk much about is how persistent is this change or do you think this change is going to be? Seth, I don't know if, if you've ever tried to you know, establish a relationship with a primary care provider, but you know, I have kids. And in my experience, you know, whenever I try to make an appointment with my primary care physician, if I have not seen my primary care physician in two years, I am required to give all of my insurance information. I'm required to go in for a new patient visit, and I'm required to go establish myself with that physician before I'm allowed to seek any care with them. And all of these are you know, hurdles to using primary care. All of these present a cost, a time cost, to a parent who is trying to use primary care for their child. And so when the lead testing becomes a, a priority for the parent, for them to actually invest the time to make that connection, to get the insurance information to the primary care provider, to have that initial new patient visit in order to get the lead test, then the next time when their child has a cough, the parent does not have to overcome, again, that same time obstacle in order to uh, to seek care with that primary care physician. So from our point of view, the lead test really acts as a way for the parent to commit to a primary care physician because they need that lead test and all subsequent visits are much easier. And because of that, we believe that this effect, or we see in our data that the effect does last in the one and a half, two year period that we're observing in our data post September 2015. Oh, that's great. And then presumably, and I know this is outside your data, but I'm sure there's research on it, this sort of commitment to primary care and these reestablished or newly established relationships, what do we know about the long-run benefits of that regular primary care for children's development in terms of health and educational outcomes? Do we know anything about that? So we do know a little bit about this. I'm going to lean into the, the economics literature here in terms of long-run effects of access to uh, Medicaid. Over the last five to 10 years, there's been quite a few papers that have looked at sort of the longer-term benefits of access early in life, going back to either prenatal care, but also early childhood. And from that, we, we've seen that there are improvements in educational attainment, as well as improvements in adult health and even uh, mortality effects, reductions in mortality. And then these are consistent with areas that have expanded Medicaid or made Medicaid more attainable for young children. They do see large, sort of the concurrent effects of those are, are generally increased healthcare utilization, but the longer term effects do show up in terms of both health, better health, as well as better educational outcomes as well. Yeah, it's not surprising, but it's always sort of reassuring to see that borne out in the data. And this is, I guess, a little bit tricky to think about given the the unusual context of, of the Flint water crisis. But what, if anything, can policymakers and healthcare professionals and community leaders, what should they take away from your findings? I have one idea, but I'm, I'm curious what, what you all think. So I think that uh, it is quite clear that the Flint water contamination was a terrible event that undermined the community in Flint that caused a lot of stress, a lot of health damage, and caused a substantial loss and trust in both medical as well as state authority. But the way we see our results is that we see it from the lens of what would it take to tie a Medicaid family to their primary care provider. And what we found is that testing for lead acted as 
the nudge or the motivator needed in order to get parents to invest the time to, to create a relationship with a primary care provider, which to us means that parents are very willing to establish a, a relationship with a primary care provider, but the cost associated, time cost specifically, not the monetary, but the time cost is a significant barrier. And so reducing these costs and providing these nudges towards creating that relationship is an important way of creating a longer-term healthcare maintenance for children, especially those who are on Medicaid. Yeah, I think that's right. So how would you go about, do you have other ideas for like what those nudges would look like or or maybe maybe some sort of like automatic meeting or automatic checkup that would that would jumpstart or catalyze that that connection in lieu of a environmental disaster? So one of the things that we have continued exploring is to what extent are these kinds of events motivating parents to seek more care and more of care for their children that are aimed at this specific setting. And what we find is that, you know, Medicaid is a zero cost insurance. There are no co-pays, no premiums. And that often is not enough in order to motivate parents to, to seek the care that is freely provided. Something like a greater outreach to these parents to invite them to schedule appointments is likely to be more productive than simply making the appointments required, which parents can often sidestep. Right. And then I guess related to all this is that the other big takeaway for me is just that primary care is is fundamentally important, but it's also systematically underutilized in a lot of marginalized communities. And especially from the physician's point of view or the the office's point of view, what can they be doing to increase the use of their services more broadly and to help develop those relationships, especially in communities like Flint? Yeah, I I think that's a really good and really difficult question to answer. There is obviously, you can think about some work. Marcella Alson has done some interesting work um, looking at trying to link patients to, you know, physicians that might be, you know, might be more similar to them and might have, you know, more of a shared experience and has shown evidence that that increases preventive care. And it sort of, you know, it seems to be coming through some increase in trust in the physician. And so that, I mean, I think that does kind of speak to this idea of improving health communication for physicians and improving trust between physicians and patients is, is a really important idea. And how to actually improve on that would certainly require improvements in the pipeline of healthcare professionals, uh, increasing sort of supply of healthcare professionals as well. But it is it is a much more complicated and, and sort of difficult question to, to kind of get at. Yeah. Well, I fully agree. And, and that's important work. And, and I agree about the importance of building trust and relationships. Well, we're about out of time. I think we covered most of the ideas and, and questions I wanted to talk about. Is there anything that we missed or a key takeaway that, that either of you would like to leave our audience with? I would like to emphasize one of our findings, which to us was surprising, which was that we did not find a reduction in total cost or payments that were paid, despite the fact that there was a decrease in ED visits and increase in primary care. We thought ED visits were you know, expensive care, but what we found is that in net, we ended up with no significant change in payment, which to us drove home that primary care does not save healthcare dollars. It is the essentially the cheapest way to get someone healthy. And we really like that takeaway in that the purpose, I think, of switching children into primary care isn't to save our society money, but rather to get our children to be healthier. 
I think that's exactly right and a perfect point to end on. I want to thank you both again for taking the time to talk to us today about your important work. Again, this is coming out in JPAM. Our guests today have been Dr. Shushan Danagulian at Wayne State University in Detroit and Dr. Daniel Grossman at West Virginia University. Uh, Thanks to both of you again for talking to us today. Thanks so much, Seth. Thank you. And until next time, this is Seth Gershenson signing off for JPAM's Closer Luck. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of JPAM, the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management, in conjunction with American University's School of Public Affairs. Please follow us on the APAM website and search for the JPAM podcast.